everyone. Welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol and I just want to welcome you back to our series on Revelation. We're on chapter 17. I can't believe it. We only have a few more left. So just thank you so much for tuning in with us. You know, there are few passages in the Bible that have been more mysterious or more perplexing than the chapters that we're going into, chapters 17 and 18 of Revelation. Because in these two chapters, they are dealing with this place called Babylon, Mystery Babylon. And it is uh, quite um, confusing to a lot of us when we first read it. Because the subject matter in these chapters is all about what's called a great city, only it's described metaphorically using imagery of a woman who is described as a great harlot or a filthy prostitute. So let's start by reading the chapter and then let's see if we can um, make some sense out of all this. Chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings, who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, 
and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. You know, the remainder of Revelation is dominated by two female figures. One is a filthy prostitute that we just read about, and the other is a pure bride, and neither is a person. Both are personifications because they represent cities. The filthy prostitute is a personification of Babylon, which is the city of man. And the pure bride is a picture of the new Jerusalem, the city of God. And these two cities are in opposition to each other and have been all through history. And yet the ancient city of Babylon is no longer while Jerusalem still stands today. So before we dig into the imagery found in this chapter, I do think it's important to give some kind of context around Babylon, ancient Babylon, since in Revelation we're dealing with a woman named Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. What is it about ancient Babylon that it is referenced and being singled out in these two chapters of Revelation before the close of the age. Well, let's talk a moment about the origin of cities. Because in the Bible, generally, cities were bad places. They had a bad history. You know, the first mention of a city, which whenever there's a first mention in your Bible, that is usually significant in the Bible. But in Genesis is the first mention of a city, and the city that's first mentioned is associated with a man named Lamech, who is a descendant from the line of Cain. Now, Cain is found in Genesis chapter 4. Remember the story of Cain, and he killed his brother Abel, and then, you know, he, he was found out by God and then driven out and then dwelt in a different land away from his family. Well, in the account of Cain's descendants, Lamech was purposefully singled out. He was a man who was ruled by sin, being the first to design and build weapons that would kill and destroy. And so the first mention of cities in the Bible starts on the wrong side of the family tree. And what I mean by that is, I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but in the Bible, there are two lines or two threads of people that run in parallel to each other all throughout. And not just all throughout the Bible, but all throughout history, even today. The righteous and the unrighteous seeds, the wheat or the tares, however you want to say it. We have a series called Why Israel? I really encourage you, if you want to learn more about that, to tune into part two of Why Israel. Well, anyway, Lamech, he came from a line that was unrighteous. It was godless. He came from Cain's line. And the cities that were built from that line became a breeding ground for sin. You see, when cities are built, what happens? People live in tight quarters, in concentrated areas. And when that takes place, people have the choice to remain, to live, kind of remain relatively unseen or known, right? They leave little room for accountability because they don't know too many people or even more room for anonymity, anonymity. And thus it makes it easier when you're in a situation like that, it makes it easier for crime to flourish and sin to prevail. 
because a lot of people don't know each other or you can quickly get hidden in different places of a city. And so, for example, lust was usually concentrated in the cities. That's why prostitutes would carry on their trade in the cities where there was activity and people could remain anonymous. I mean, that's still today, but not so much because you, you have now apps where people can hook up on apps or even, you know, pornography online, whatever. You get the point. But another example is how anger and violence and rioting, those all took place in cities. Those things are less likely to occur in a suburb. Now, there, of course, are exceptions, but this is the general rule, and that's the point I'm trying to make. So, so the origin of cities, they kind of developed, and they, they were breeding grounds for sin, and they came from this person that originated from this person named Lamech from Cain's line. But where does Babylon come into this? Well, after the flood occurred in Genesis 7 and 8, the genealogy of the sons of Noah is listed. You got to pay attention to your genealogies and the genealogies in the Bible. You just have to. They're not super exciting, but they are helpful. Well, from Noah's sons, he had a particular son named Ham. And from Ham came descendants that result in an unrighteous line. For example, from Ham's descendants came all of the ites in scripture, right? The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, right? All those ites came from this unrighteous line. But descendants from this line also included the Philistines and Canaan or the Canaanites, right? Well, that was the future land of Israel. God had his righteous people trying to move them into a land that was being ruled by unrighteous people. Also from this line, though, were the descendants that made up Assyria, Nineveh, Egypt, Libya. Is it starting to ring a bell a little bit? These are all the enemies of God in the Bible. Well, one of Ham's sons was named Cush, and Cush had a son named Nimrod. And he was described as the, quote, the first on earth to be a mighty man. And his name means to rebel. (laughs) So in the ancient Hebrew Semitic cultures, a person's name was closely related to their character. And therefore Nimrod's name fits well with his personality, but also where the line was heading. Because the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was a city called Babel in Mesopotamia. Sound familiar? And from there, he went into Assyria and he built Nineveh in all kinds of other major cities. In fact, Assyria was still regarded as the land of Nimrod years later. And so when you study the cities that were built through the descendants of the unrighteous thread, the descendants of Ham, the stories in the Bible, they become much more clear. And you understand why God sided with Israel, this righteous line, when they battled such cities and such places. So Nimrod, he founded this place called Babel, which ultimately became Babylon. And it was in a place called Mesopotamia. And Mesopotamia is a Greek term which means between two rivers because it was located in the plains between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. And today... Ancient Mesopotamia is now modern-day Iraq. Well, this city, Babylon, became a great city and one that challenged God in the Old Testament, beginning with the building of what is called the Tower of Babel. 
but it later became the capital of a large and powerful empire, the Babylonian Empire, especially under the rule of King Nebuchadnezzar, a ruthless tyrant who destroyed babies, animals, even trees when he conquered new territory. And that's found in Habakkuk 2 and Habakkuk 3, verses 17. But it began with the building of the Tower of Babel, or Babel, or Babel. People call it different things. And that word, Babel, means to confound. It means confusion. So it's a city, this tower that was being built was was named after confusion, of course, because we know what happened there. These people were trying to build a tower to reach God, and he ended up confusing their language so that they could stop the construction of this tower. But this word, confound or confusion, babble, is derived from a root that means to mix. So keep that in mind when you consider the Babylon of Revelation. Confusion and mixture. Now, Nimrod, he was a man with ambitions, and he wanted to build the tallest building in the world to exalt man's greatness. And that still is the ambition of many people in nations today. Do you see how much higher all these skyscrapers are going? I mean, consider the guy who was the American architect who designed the World Trade Center. Yamasaki was his last name, and he said, the World Trade Center, a representation of man's belief in humanity, his need for individual dignity, his beliefs in the cooperation of men, and through cooperation, his ability to find greatness. Well, not much has changed. Nimrod wanted a building that would reach up into God's sphere to exalt man's greatness. Well, in the plains of Mesopotamia, there was no stone available, no rock available, nor there was anything like steel. So, What did they build it with? Well, they had bricks. And so they used bricks combined with a cement-like mixture to construct a type of stepped pyramid tower. So when you see pictures of the Tower of Babel in kids' books or what have you, don't picture like a skyscraper building going straight up into the sky. Picture more like a pyramid with a, a similar shape to that of what you would see in Egypt. And this structure, although not a skyscraper, would turn out to be quite impressive. Because you see, Babylon sat on a major trade route connecting the continents of Asia, Africa, and Europe. So it was heavily traveled. See, where you had rivers or seaports or where there was a crossroads into other continents, that's where cities would typically get established. Well, the Mesopotamia Basin, it was an incredibly flat area. And travelers traveling on this route, on this trade route, as they're traveling along, would be able to see this tower rising up out in the distance, miles ahead, almost like a mountain would. And then, so through this, it became a major city. And when this city was built, it marked the beginning of humanism. And if you don't know what humanism is, it's a system of thought attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. It's man's self-identification. I built that. I did that. I thought of that. I can control that. Mankind, from this unrighteous thread or unrighteous seed, 
thought himself to be just as intelligent, just as important, and just as mighty as God, which is a belief that has been passed on in the world from then until now and becomes the main thrust of Revelation 17 and 18. This corrupt city of Babylon that has intoxicated the world. And then you have, in contrast to this, King David of Israel, who established Jerusalem as its capital. It was not in a strategic position for trade, since it was not by the sea, it was not by a major river, or by a main road. Jerusalem came to be because God put it there. There's no other reason for it, which is why it is called the city of God the holy city, the city of David. It's the place where God put his name and chose to live among his people. At first in the tent Moses assembled, and then later in the temple Solomon built, and soon to be his future throne for eternity. So one city is named after confusion and mixture, and the other is named after the God of Israel, who was also creator, Lord, Master, Maker, righteous, holy, pure, truth, right? The complete opposite of confusion and mixing. And when you understand the origin of these things, you then begin to understand your Bible much better and you will understand the ending of Revelation much better, that we're dealing with two personifications of women, which are cities, this unholy city of Babylon and the holy city of Jerusalem. Well, Babylon ultimately became the greatest threat to Jerusalem. For example, King Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem from 589 to 587 BC, and in 586 destroyed the temple. This is where you have captives that were taken captive in Babylon. This is where in your Bible the story of Daniel comes in because he's captive in Babylon. Esther comes in, Nehemiah, Ezra. Ezekiel is a captive in Babylon. And so they destroyed the temple of the Jews in 586 BC, but it was rebuilt, but then destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And there has been no temple since. And what you see in Israel today has been just a rebuild by various empires over the generations built upon ruins upon the site where the temple once sat that now has the Alaska Mosque. Either way, today, despite being trampled by every major empire for about 3,000 years, Jerusalem still exists and Babylon is no more because it eventually fell in 539 BC. And so if that's the case, who is this Babylon that is being mentioned in Revelation 17 and 18? Is it talking about the same place? If so, it would have to be rebuilt. Well, let's just first start off by talking about this chapter in a very simple, simple way. I'm just going to break down a few words for you from the first couple of sentences so we can understand what it's addressing. And it's the sentence of of Babylon as a great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Well, let's start with the word harlot. Actually, in the original, it says horror. And so it's defined, this this city, this description is defined as a horror who is an idolater. That's the definition. It's one who is an idolater 
to the point where they sell their body or yield themselves to defilement for the sake of gain, most times for money. In desperate situations, you had women who became prostitutes for food or to provide for their family. But the comparison that's being made here is that this is a city that is being compared to a whore who sells her body or gives herself over to be defiled in order for to gain money or to gain power, to gain. Well, the next verse, the next word I want to address is that word great because it's called the great harlot. Well, great actually means large. It means mighty. It means strong. It's defining a size or a measure. So this is a city known by the world. It is going to be a city whose influence is felt. It's a great city. Then you have the word sits. It sits on many waters. Actually, it says, it says sitteth. But what that means is it inhabits a place. It dwells in a place. So this is a real city. Some people will ta- say that it's a system but it's believed to be a real, a real city, uh, similar to the letter of Pergamon, right? Where Satan had his throne. It was a real place. It was the altar of Zeus. But it sits upon many waters. And waters here is symbolic of nations, of people. And that's in Strong's Concordance 5204, where we have the water of life in Revelation 21 and 22, This is water that is symbolic of nations and people. Then you have kings who, of course, are sovereigns. And then you have that word fornication. And what that means is indulgence in unlawful lust or sex or idolatry. You're indulging in unlawful things. And in this verse, it's used metaphorically of these kings. They are indulging in unlawful things that this metaphorical Babylon is offering. And then you have the word drunk, which means, of course, intoxicated. And then wine, which is used metaphorically of the evils that are ministered to the nations, just like uh, Jesus makes them drink the wine of his wrath. Well, here, wine is used as a metaphorical picture of evil that is being, that the nations are drinking. So we got a little bit of a picture. So not to over-spiritualize this opening verse of 17, but if we take it at face value with just a very simple interpretation from these word meanings, then we are dealing with a place that lives and operates in a way not much different from ancient Babylon. It's idolatrous. It's corrupt. It's immoral. And it has prostituted itself with other nations of the world seducing them with such evils to the point that the inhabitants of the earth are also intoxicated by her. They are normalizing sin. Now, there are various positions people take on who this harlot is and who Babylon is, so to speak. There are people who mention that it's Rome. There are people who mention that it's Islam or a revived uh, Ottoman Empire. There are people who say it's the Roman Catholic Church. People also mention maybe the city is New York City or the United States in general or Washington, D.C. 
or maybe it's an apostate Jerusalem or a literal Babylon. People have even mentioned the Illuminati or apostate Christendom. I mean, the ideas just keep coming. But at the end of the day, it's a mystery. That's why it's called Mystery Babylon, until God reveals it to us. Those of you out there who hold to a preterist viewpoint, who regard predictions as being fulfilled during the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, when the church was under the pressures of imperial persecutions, they identify Babylon, this harlot, as Rome, because that's the way the original readers of Revelation would take it. Peter seems to make the same comparison in 1 Peter 5.13, perhaps written for a similar purpose, to help the saints prepare for suffering. And the reference, and the reference to the seven hills would also support that position, although the seven hills are believed to represent seven kings. I'll get to that. Also, there's very few, if any, of the specific predictions that actually come true in the Roman Empire. And since nearly all scholars accept that the last few chapters of Revelation cover the end of the world, which is still future to us, there's this huge gap that is left between the beginning and end of church history with no direct guidance for the many intervening centuries. So Rome was definitely a type of Babylon, but is it this Babylon? Most, a lot of people aren't sure or don't think so. They just believe it's a foreshadowing of the Babylon that dominates end time world history which is where Revelation firmly places it. And those of you out there who hold to a historicist viewpoint also support Rome. Remember, a historicist believes predictions cover the entire church age. This fits well with church history, as the papacy and the Vatican claim to be political as well as religious powers. However, the Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18 makes no mention of a religious power. And then those who hold to a futurist viewpoint believe that the central block of predictions apply to the last few years leading up to the second coming of Christ. It is the climax of evil and the climax of the Great Tribulation. Many people believe that this position is nearer the truth as it sees the city as a new metropolis that rises up to dominate others during the end time period. And also, since it is designated as a mystery that is now revealed they believe that to be true. So many think this is a new city rather than the establishment of a former city, whether it be Babylon or Rome. I just wanted to give you some of those things to think about because I know we've all been taught over the years many different things. But when you look at the simplicity of the text, you know, it kind of speaks for itself and we just need to let things play out. Either way, it will clearly be the city or a city that is a city of commerce, a place for getting and spending money, and culture will not be neglected in it. It will be not just corrupt, but it will be corrupting. It will have pleasure without purity, wealth without wisdom, lust without love, like a harlot, giving anyone anything they want in exchange for money or something else. And so as we continue in this passage, we find that this woman, she's riding a beast and this beast is full of names of blasphemy. And she is arrayed in this royal attire like a queen would be. 
And she's got seven heads and ten horns, and they reference her as Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. So upon seeing her and all her ugliness, the apostle John was completely appalled. He marveled. I mean, can you just imagine? His mouth was probably dropped open. And as the angel was about to unravel the mystery of the woman, the angel instead goes into a description of the beast and never addresses really the details of the woman. But this is not by mistake because we first must understand the identity of the beast and this, these kings, these horns and these, these kings of whatever that's on the beast before understanding the identity of the woman. Because once we understand that, then we can understand the woman's relationship to the beast. Then we have a better idea of what the woman represents in these passages of scripture. And it says that this woman, she is drunk with the blood of the saints, those who bore the testimony of Jesus, indicating the presence of Christians that occurs throughout Revelation. So there will be martyrs in this city which is why the Christians are told to come out of her, my people, in chapter 18, which we'll get to. There's no place for holy people in a city devoted to immorality. The community does not want a conscience. Now, these seven heads on this beast are referred to as the seven heads, but also seven mountains. And there's ten horns, which are representative of kings. So what does all that mean? Well, it represents a federation of political and influential figures. The seven heads, mountains, are metaphorical for seven imperial rulers, seven kings. We're not told who they are, nor are we given details about them. However, many scholars make reference to either Daniel chapter 7 Revelation 12, and even Revelation 13, which may give us clues to this seven-headed beast. Many believe it represents seven historical satanic empires. The Egyptian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, which would be now in this passage of Scripture, And then people speculate that the next empire would be the Islamic empire, that revived Ottoman empire that suffered a blow in 1917-18, World War I, when the British empire conquered them, and now they are making a comeback. So some people speculate it's that's the next empire, and then of course the empire of the Antichrist. And then there are 10 others who are mentioned kings who have no territory, but they will receive royal power as a king with the beast for one hour. Now that's not really hard to imagine today. What does it mean to be a ruler with no territory? Well, there are many people with tremendous power out there. People who have power over corporations, over the media, over social media, over the entertainment industry, over the medical industry, over banking. They have tremendous influence, but no territory, but they still rule. So it's just something to consider. This could also indicate to us that economies will rule over politics. 
and that the power of money will actually override the authority of government. Money talks. Money bought the position of high priest for a period of time in the Bible. Money can buy political positions right now, seats of office. Money can influence the education system, the judicial system, all kinds of things. It's the root of all kinds of evil. And this woman, this harlot, she is riding on the backs of these powerful people whose power is derived and more than likely energized from the beast, probably the Antichrist with whom they have complete allegiance. What a contrast, a queen riding the backs of kings, which is a complete reversal of God's order from creation. But above all, they will be blatantly anti-Christian, making war against the lamb and those with him. But the lamb will overcome them. And then an even stranger turn of events happens. The monster the harlot is sitting upon, he turns on her, devouring her body and burning what remains. In other words, the ten kings of the earth who have no kingdom as of yet become jealous of this woman of Babylon and work together with the Antichrist and false prophet to destroy her. And God is the one who puts it in their minds to do so. He will accomplish his purpose to destroy Babylon by working through them. It's the same way he worked through Pontius Pilate regarding his son's crucifixion. That's mentioned in Acts chapter 4, 27 to 28. The kings are then finally offered royal power, rulership, but it's going to be brief. It's for one hour and the city will be raised by fire. And it will be the biggest economic disaster the world has ever seen. Babylon gets destroyed. And in the opening of chapter 18, angels are rejoicing at her destruction. We'll pick up there in our next episode. Thank you so much for tuning in today as we dig in to Mystery Babylon. Until next time, take care. (music) 